This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 46, with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today for part two is... Matt Pacetti from MJP Property Group. Hey, Matt. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us for part two of this two-part series on syndication. My pleasure. And the last time we, we spoke, we kind of covered a, a bunch of different topics, just a, a high level. You know, we talked about getting comfortable investing out of state, underwriting a syndication deal, due diligence, all of that stuff. And uh, I think we, we covered a lot, but we didn't cover everything. So we wanted to have a part two and kind of continue our conversation. But I guess the first thing, since it is May 1st, how are things going with all of your properties in terms of your tenants paying rent? That's a great question. Obviously, with this whole coronavirus pandemic that's been going on, that's a, a concern that we had, you know, make, make sure that everyone's paying their rent. And so we did a couple of different things. So when we last spoke for the for part one, that was that was back in mid-March. And right around that time is when everything started slowing down. A lot of the states at that point started putting on the um, stay-at-home orders and things of that nature. And so, you know, the first hurdle was really that April 1st rent payments and, and how were people going to handle that. We proactively reached out to the residents in all of the units that we manage. And as ownership, we wanted to, number one, make sure that people were safe. And we did certain things, you know, we, we started, we let them know that we were not going to have maintenance people coming into their units uh, for, for, for safety of both, both the maintenance and the tenants, uh, unless it was an emergency type of situation. Obviously, there's a, you know, pipe burst and there's water flying everywhere. You got to do that. But um, we also closed the leasing offices. Uh, we still are showing apartments, but at uh, appointment only and keeping social distancing and our property managers are wearing masks and all that kind of thing. Um, in terms of those collections, we closed out April yesterday. Uh, and I'm glad to say we're at about two to 3% delinquency, which is, you know, kind of close to average of where we would be. Not, you know, you always get one or two tenants, especially, you know, with the amount of units that we have that, that, that don't pay rent or, you know, things happen, but they paid rent. And sorry, getting back to the, what I had mentioned before in our communication, we, we communicated with people to, to let them know what our policies were, to let them know where they could go locally for any sort of assistance that they might need, including links to the unemployment website um, so that they could file for unemployment and also let them know, hey, rent, you are still required to, to pay your rent. But if you're going to have a problem with paying your rent, let us know. We'll work something out. We, we, ha- we have had a small percentage of our tenants that are un- were unable to pay their April rent. And they did, most of them reached out to us and, and you know, we followed up with people and, and have put people onto payment plans. And that was for April. And, and keep in mind, people were able to still work for maybe half to three quarters of March, right? There was, there was still employment, especially at the beginning of March. So we're really curious to see where our May collections come in. Usually, you know, that first Friday of the month, we see a lot of collections come in. And we're seeing, 
collections coming in today. We don't start charging pay, uh, start charging late fees until the fifth. So we usually see the vast majority of everything come in by the fifth. So I can't tell you where we are for May right now. I don't think May will be as good collection wise as April. But quite honestly, to just have two to three percent of delinquencies uh, in rent payments is is phenomenal. And um, you know, I'm I'm very pleased about it. I, I think we're in we're in good shape so far. That's awesome. I also think we have a long way to go. Yeah. We'll see what the next couple of months look like. <laughs> yeah. So far we're in good shape. You know, we we have, you know, good cash reserves. We were gonna do some distributions in March and we we told our investors that we we're just gonna hold on to them, have a little bit of extra cash available. The see just basically how things go, I think probably through June or July we'll have a really good understanding of where we are and uh, hopefully be able to just, hopefully everything goes back to, to normal or, you know, close to normal in terms of operations, but we'll, we'll have to, we'll see what the future brings. What's been very interesting to me is in the past week, we have had an unbelievable amount of people um, coming to our apartments and viewing them and signing leases for the next couple of months. There's been a, in the past, like starting last week, there's been a huge uptick in, in, in traffic, which I was very surprised about. That is interesting. That is very interesting. Can you go back, Matt, real quick on your comment that you made um, with respect to your partners or uh, equity investors? You are not going to do a distribution. So kind of just high level, assuming that the structure is some percentage of um, net incomes or, or net cash flows. Does that just get accrued and you're going to wait until this goes on? Or what's the general agreement or vibe with the investors on that? You know, the way that I have these structured, it it changes from deal to deal, but it's anywhere from usually 15 to 20% of the equity is held by the general partners. So you've got 80 to 85% that is uh, the limited partners that have put in the equity. So out of our cash flow, out of our as the cash flow comes out, we just do the, a straight split. So let's say the deal's an 80-20 split. For every dollar that comes out, 80, 80 cents goes to the investors and 20 cents goes to the general partnership. In this case, we're just not doing a distribution to anybody right now. We're just holding on to it. My investor group's been very happy, I think, with the performance that we've had on our properties. And it was going to be a very nice distribution in March. I, I didn't get a single response back from any of my investors with a negative comment. I heard back from maybe 25 to 30% of the investors and those that did respond said, great idea. I think that's a smart move. So, I mean, we're just trying to be prudent here. What, what will happen is we will assess our, our cash situation um, in, in a couple of months. Like I said, probably in June or July, we just have to sort of see where things are and see how we feel. And look, if we haven't dipped into the reserve from the March operations, we'll we'll give that distribution out. We'll probably, you know, hopefully have additional both of the proper properties that we have in Kansas and and the Kansas City area were extremely profitable in April. I mean, our April collections were actually uh, income. I should say income was higher than our March income. Um, so they did fine, although we have some delinquencies that the, the, the total income was, was great. And, and we do feel that we'll collect on those delinquencies. So uh, there will be a distribution, I think, to give out, but we're just trying to be safe in case 
things really go off the rails in the next couple of months, well, having that cash in your account is going to be paramount right now. So we just want to make sure. I guess I was just getting at, you know, say you want to have like a reserve of $10,000 in the account. And because of everything that's been going on, you bump that up to 20000 So you're saying that once things are stable and settled down, they're still getting their 80%. It just might be deferred a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we, th- so our reserves are, are much higher than, than just it's, it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, but yes, I mean, our intention is that, in, you know, that their distribution will be delayed approximately three months. That's our intention. And we'll have to see how things go. Look, if May's gangbusters and June collections look great, then it, it won't even be, have been a full three months. If things start really slowing down, it may be longer. Our goal is to to distribute our profit as quickly as we can to our investors. So it's it's just going to depend on how profitable it is. So far, it's been great. Awesome. So last question regarding the pandemic stuff, and then we'll move on to more of the the general uh, syndication um, stuff. But the Fannie and Freddie, are any of your loans backed by Fannie and Freddie? Because I know that they're, aren't they not allowing or are holding off on payments uh, mortgage payments for all Fannie and Freddie loans, and does that affect you at all? Yes, yeah, so we can definitely talk about that. So, yeah, all of my loans are are Fannie or Freddie. We almost exclusively deal in in that agency debt world. We think it's it's the best kind of debt, and you know what we look to do is is hold. You know, we're usually doing ten, most of the time, twelve year term loans on this, so it's very long term, which allows us to be able to weather a storm like this, right? I've been prepared for, I had no idea it would be COVID, right? But I was prepared for some sort of shock. So that that's why I think we're in, we're in good shape. And the way that Fannie and Freddie, the guidelines right now, and they're, they're different for each of those two agencies, but ballpark, they're both saying, listen, you can forbearance if you want. If you need to, you can get forbearance on your loan and we'll forbear that loan for up to 90 days. So you have, you know, basically three consecutive months where you can forego paying your mortgage. You need to apply for that and show that you've had some hardship, right? Then, you know, justify why you're not paying it. And the way that it's set up right now is you have to do that by August. So we still have some time if we were to decide that we needed to go down the forbearance road. We have chosen to not do that. Number one, we don't need to, <laughs> not the most importantly, but but secondly, even if we did sort of need to, we might dip into our reserves first. And the reason being, you get it deferred for you know 90 days worth of pay for three months, but as soon as that 90-day period is over, you need to start repaying. And you have 12 months to repay it all back, and it would be divided evenly amongst those 12 months. So, you know, you would see basically in that fourth month a massive, massive bump in your mortgage payment. There are also certain rules regarding how you have to operate while you're in forbearance and also while you're in the payback period in terms of maybe not being able to get additional loans at that time. They say that it's not going to really count against you, but I think any forbearance on your record, even if it's during COVID, it's, you know, it's not the greatest, not, it's not a great thing to have on your record. Yeah, that makes sense. But also 
there's certain rules around uh, evictions, like for non-payment of rent. There are already guidelines in place based off of the CARES Act, right? With with a basically an eviction um, moratorium for right now. But if you go into a forbearance situation, that can be extended even further. And there's some other, you know, rules and regulations, basically things that that Fannie and Freddie are doing that just make it forbearance is obviously going to be your last option. You, you don't really want to have to do that. But if you do, it's there. If you do, it's there. And I have a feeling that if this continues to be bad and, and economic conditions continue to deteriorate, Fannie and Freddie would be looking at the, you know, they, they'd be having multiple people with issues and they might look to modify this extend this, or maybe you could reach out to your lender just on your own and get some sort of, you know, individual case by case loan modification. I don't, I, you know, I think that they're being extremely reasonable with this. If, if you've got a property that's been running well, but so far we're not, we're not even close to needing to exercise any options along those lines. All right. Awesome. Thanks. So let's get back into this, the life cycle of, of a syndication deal. So I think where we got sure. to last time was, you know, we've identified a property. We've talked about the underwriting process. Say we want to move forward and, and start gathering investors, et cetera. So where do we go from there? You know, the property is, a, you know, is under agreement and what type of documentation you need to put together? And then how do you structure everything with with your investors and how do you actually reach out to your investors got it yeah so let's let's say we did talk last time i believe about loi letter of intent and we, if we didn't talk about that we definitely talked about like the deal terms we put those terms in the loi gets a group you know uh agreed upon we go into purchase and sale and so the first step is the due diligence so when that first happens I reach out to my investor. I have an investor database. And so I reach out to all my investors and say, hey, guys, we've got this really exciting deal under agreement. We're going into due diligence. We'll keep you posted. And that's basically it. I don't really give too much detail, especially on the returns and everything, because we want to make sure we've we've made it through due diligence and that things are copacetic, right? Sometimes during due diligence, you might find that you need, you know, all new roofs, for example. And you might have to go back and forth with the seller on renegotiating the terms. And it may be that your returns are going to be a little bit lower or something like that. So we, we like to wait until we're at least done with due diligence before we're actually getting in front of people. But what I'm doing at that point while we're in due diligence is, but anytime you have investors invest on a deal, it can be considered a, a security, right? So if you're selling a security in the U.S., by the SEC, you have to have a broker dealer license, um, and so what you need to do is make sure that what you're doing is in compliance. Um, what, what we do is we take a look at what we're doing and work with our SEC attorney to make sure that what we're doing is actually not considered a security, so we don't have to get the thing registered with the with the SEC, which would take a long time and cost a lot of money. Um, we wouldn't be able to act quickly enough to close on the property. Plus, I don't have a broker dealer license, so. What we do is we we create a, a a syndication under an exemption in the SEC code. In using those that exemption, there's basically two different ways to kind of skin the cat. There's a these are called Regulation D offerings, and there's a 506B and a 506C. 
we do a 506B, which allows us to have people who are considered accredited investors, but we can also bring people who are not accredited investors into our deal. Can we just define what an accredited investor is? 100%. We can bring in non-accredited as long as they're sophisticated. And so the SEC is very clear about what an accredited investor is. An accredited investor is someone who has a net worth of a million dollars or more, not including their primary residence, or that they, they and their that they make have made for the past couple of years $200,000 a year with the expectation that that's going to continue moving forward, or that them and their spouse has a combined income of $300,000 per year or more for the past couple of years, and that that, you know, indicative that that's going to continue moving forward. Those are the rules to be sort of accredited. Now, sophisticated doesn't have a a specific number of thresholds, but it needs to be someone who understands real estate. The way I explain it to people is I say, well, if I ask you what a T12 is and you don't know what it is, then you're probably not sophisticated, right? So you want someone who is going to understand how to look at a deal and the, and the kind of ways that, that deals are being underwritten and the sort of risks that are involved in them. And, you know, as a sponsor, it's actually helpful to me because I don't want to bring in people who don't understand the risk involved and, and the basics of the operations of a multifamily deal. I'm happy to teach people about those things and, and, and share the information that I have, like I'm doing right now on the podcast, right? But I don't want to take money from someone who doesn't really understand what they're investing in and how those things work. I would much rather have them get educated, learn how those things work, and then t- and then I'll have them invest in my deals. But prior to that, I just personally don't wouldn't feel comfortable with that. So along with the person either being accredited or sophisticated, I have to have, because it's a 506B, I have to have a pre-existing substantive relationship with the person, which means... It can't be someone that I met at a meetup real quick and got their business card and haven't spoken with since. That's not a substantive relationship. But a substantive relationship might be the person that I met at that meetup or somebody reaches out to me after hearing me on a podcast or whatever, you know, some sort of interaction with somebody. And then there's follow-up conversations and I start to understand who they are what they're looking to do, what they're looking to invest in, their investment goals, right? And they understand me and kind of work I do, how I structure my deals. We've gotten to know each other a bit. Then it's a lot more kosher. Prior to that, it's it can be problematic. There's also another way to do a syndication, which is a 506C. That does not require that pre-existing substantive relationship, but you can only bring in accredited investors in that deal. So if you're not accredited, there's no way that you're in. So getting back to the, the process, I reach out to my SEC attorney at this point in time while we're starting to go through due diligence and we start getting documents drafted up. We have to create an entity because there's going to be an entity, usually an LLC that we create that's going to actually be purchasing the property. And then we have to have an operating agreement for that entity, which is really important because there's a lot of detail in that operating agreement. And then we have a shorter document, which is a subscription agreement for investors to find it, fill out if 
when they want to subscribe. And then the all-important PPM, which is the Private Placement Memorandum, which is a very large document that basically tells you all the different ways that you could lose money in the deal, right? A lot of uh, disclosure of any sort of fees that are associated, the risks that are associated, um, all of those different types of things. And then we also have a business plan that gets incorporated into that as well as an exhibit. So is the PPM primarily protecting your, you yourself or the general partners or protecting both the uh, general partners and the investors? All of those documents all together combined, I think, protect and disclose to the invest. Like it protects the investors because the investors are investing in an LLC. That gives them protection if something, God forbid, were to happen on the property. Uh, nobody can try to sue that individual investor. They're covered because there's an LLC barrier there, right? So that helps protect the investor. Also, all this information discloses everything to the investors of everything that's going to go on, how we're going to operate, what fees there are, how much of the profits people are going to get. I mean, it really details everything. And the business plan discusses all of that in great detail. And it also does protect, yeah, the, the LLC itself. It protects members from other members and it protects the general partners like myself. We just want everything to be fully transparent so that everybody sees and understands what we're doing, what our intention is going in, uh, what our game plan is. But especially like in the operating agreement, there's a whole bunch of clauses in there for if we need to go to a plan B, how things might work. Like, what if, let's say, for example, during this COVID crisis, all of our properties were doing terrible. We get done with our forbearance. You know, we, we burned through all of our reserves. Then we get done with our forbearance and we're still in the hole. And we don't want to get foreclosed upon. So what we may have to do in that event is have a capital call, which is when we go to the investors and say, hey, guys, we need you to put some more money in this deal or we're just going to lose it all. And there's specific rules and everything written about how capital calls may occur and, you know, whether you'd be compelled to do them or whether there's ways to get out or all, you know, the whole sort of nine yards on that. It's all described in that operating. How much of the, um, between the LLC agreement, the operating agreement, the subscription agreement and the PPM, is there any percentage of that that you are physically putting together or your team is putting together outside of the attorneys? Or is it all just you hand it over to the attorneys, tell them the idea and the objectives, and they, they create it for you? So the one part which you didn't mention is the business plan, which is an exhibit to all of that. That is created all by us. Everything else is created by the attorney. That is being done the attorney that, that that I work with, I've done many, many deals with, so we can do it very quickly. But the first time that you're doing these and you're structuring them, they can take quite some time because the, the attorney really needs to understand. There's a lot of ins and outs to these things on how you want to have them set up. But the attorney drafts all of that for you, or they should. And what's the typical cost, the upfront cost for an attorney to draft all of these documents? I think it depends on the attorney that you're talking with. Most of the attorneys that I know generally charge, you know, between fifteen to twenty thousand dollars for this. And it includes not only, you know, those documents, they a lot of times, you know, again, different attorneys will have different schedules and different things that they'll do, but the guy that I work with their firm will also create your entities for you. And they also handle all of the SEC filings. You have to do 
blue sky filings in every state that you have investors from. So like, I have a lot of investors from New York, which is great. I love having them, but it's also quite like once I get one person from New York, (laughs) the filing for New York is really expensive compared to most other states. But yeah, every state there's new filings and you have to do filings within a certain amount of time from when people subscribe and all of that kind of stuff. And and generally, in my experience, um, the attorneys will help you handle all of that. Matt, what is a blue sky filing? You should have an attorney tell you more on the details of it, but it's it's a disclosure to the state that someone is investing in to let them know that there's people from their state investing in this deal. I'm provided with documents <laughs> that I sign. Yeah. That's yeah. what I read. That they're not very long filings. They're usually like a page or two, and then you write them a nice check, you know, so that they can, I guess, put it on their books and, um, you know, so that they understand, hey, we're doing a 506B, you know, Reg D 506B filing in your state and, you know, X amount of money has been raised from your state on such and such dates is kind of basically what it states. So There's I no disclosure it's- of like who the investor is. It's not like I write to Massachusetts and say, hey, Mark. Dan and Ray just gave me money for the deal. You don't say who the people are or anything like mm-hmm. that, but you let them know that this entity has been created and, and took investments from that state. What was it like, just real quick, what was it like going through this the first time when you first endeavored on it? And on that first deal, you know, can you give us a high level of like number of units or size of the deal in terms yeah, of the call? Yeah. Well, so my first deal, my first syndication was $10 million property, 132 units. Prior to that, the biggest thing I had ever bought before was like a, well, one and a half million dollar property and it was two units, right? So (laughs) she just jumped right in there. (laughs) It was quite a jump. I mean, I had done a lot of, it's not like I only had the one property, but I, I had done a lot of them, but and I had invested in a lot of multifamily, right? I was a passive investor for a long time, and I continue to passively invest um, in, in, in the multifamily world and, and elsewhere. But so obviously, it is a big jump. And so I didn't want to do that on my own. So I brought in a, a very experienced business partner who, who I continue to partner with on different deals today. And uh, he had a lot of experience having done these before. Uh, you know, he had done about 10 probably more than 10 deals at that time. And we had his experience having done this, right? So that was helpful. In terms of the SEC attorney, I had met that SEC attorney about a year and a half to two years prior to doing the first deal. And I actually hired him. He only does syndications now, but at the time when I first met him, he was also doing like asset protection. So he helped me set up my company and the assets and everything sort of asset protection kind of stuff like several years prior. And I'd seen him, he's, he's a big speaker on the sort of circuit. I, I had seen him a number of different times and talked with him and, and gotten to know him really well. And so I felt very comfortable having worked with him. That being said, yes, all of that information coming in in a short period of time while you're trying to do due diligence and then raise capital for a deal and it's your first deal, it's overwhelming. I mean, it really is. It was very, very overwhelming. But I made it through alive, so that's good. And and it gets easier after the first one. But the, it's just a lot of information, which is why I think it's really important 
to put together a strong team because this is not something that people can do on their own. It's a team sport and it's really about building a strong team to help support you. So Matt, one other question we had, you mentioned business plans earlier. We were wondering as the person who goes out and finds the deal and puts the sweat into it and assembles everything, are, are, are there certain bonuses or payments that you're entitled to that you would write into your, your plan or offering? Yes. So what I would say is that obviously you can skin the cat many different ways and many different people set things up differently. I had mentioned a little bit earlier about 80-20 split. That's what I tend to do. So let me let me talk about a, a couple of things, uh, ways that deals are structured typically, right? So typically there may be an acquisition fee. And that is a fee that a syndicator will take um, just for putting the deal together. So at closing, it's usually done as a percentage of the, the price of the property, right? So, and it's generally like one to 3%, right? Again, people can structure this any way they want. People could say, I'm going to get an 8% acquisition fee. I have generally taken no acquisition fee because I was trying to build up my, uh, you know, investor pool and and have, um, you know, a, a good stable of investors that I've performed well for. And now that that's happened, I'm starting to look at taking a modest acquisition fee because it, there's a lot of time and effort, as I'm sure you know, and most of the listeners, if they're active in real estate, know there's a lot of time and effort that goes into finding these things, and a lot of a lot of money that that goes into it. So um, anyway. That's one thing. There's an acquisition fee. Then generally, there's an asset management fee that's taken by the general partnership to manage the ongoing operations. And again, that's usually between one to three percent. I actually never see anybody at one percent. It's usually two to three percent is what I'm seeing on that. And then some people will do a disposition fee. So on sale of the asset, or um, I'm seeing it a lot of times now called a capital events fee, which would cover the sale but also maybe a refinance if they did some sort of cash out refi where they're taking, you know, again, anywhere from one to 3% on the deal. I, I don't take those fees, but, but there are people who do. And then, so, so that's just basic, the basic fees. Sorry, uh, is then, the, the asset management fee, is that two to 3% yes. of the, of the gross rents or the net profit after each month? Thank you. For for clarifying, yes, that's that is important to clarify. You're right; it is. It's the gross. It's the gross revenue. Okay. Yeah, it's your EGI, your effective gross income. So then, beyond those fees, there's you know how how, how is the deal going to work? Um, like I said, the eighty twenty split is what I ch- I tend to do, where I take what well, the general partnership takes twenty percent of the equity in the deal, and the re- remaining eighty percent is divided up among the equity investors, of which I am also part of, right? I always put money into my own deal. So I usually have some limited partnership shares along with my general partnership shares. So there's that. That's a typical way of it being done where there's just a straight split, might be 1090, might be 7030, who knows, right? Uh, and that that's just a straight split all the way through. So that's you know money coming in from cash flow, right? Cash flow Income after expenses, after debt services, after everything's paid off, there's profit that gets split. And then also upon sale, that would happen as well. There are structures that are are common where there'll be a preferred return. So they might say, we're going to give you a you know 7% re- preferred return. 
on cash flow. And then everything above that then gets split 70-30. That's one thing. And then I've also seen different waterfalls where it's like, okay, it's a 7% pref. And then up and above that, we're going to go to the 70-30 split until our IRR is over 15%. And then it becomes like a 50-50 split, you know? So they these things can get quite complicated. Oh, why wouldn't why wouldn't people just want to kind of keep it simple? I prefer to keep it simple. I prefer to make my investors really, really happy because then I know they'll keep coming back, right? So I tend to, you know, I don't do a preferred return because I'm not, most of the time, I'm not taking an acquisition fee, number one. But number two, there's no preferred return because they're getting 20%. And I'm never getting up to 70 on a lot of these preferred return deal. It's great during the cash flow time. But then at the end, when the asset is sold, the sponsorship team, the general partners are keeping 30% while the investors get 70, where in my deal, it's 80-20. So they're still getting their 80%. But it just depends on on how you want to, you know, structure your deal as as a as a sponsor, how you want to structure it, and then be what your investors are willing to to accept. You know, I, I see guys who are just starting doing their first indication and they're like, I'm gonna take a three percent acquisition fee. So I'm like, oh great. So you've never done this before, and the day you close, you're gonna get, you know, a half a million dollars on closing. And then you could lose everybody's money and you know, that seems ridiculous to me. But then again, if you've got a guy or team that has an unbelievably strong track record, who's done unbelievably well for their investors in the past, and they say, hey, hey, we're going to take, you know, $500,000 at acquisition because of all the time and effort, and due diligence costs and yada, yada, yada. But they've done it before and they're really good and they've got a good track record, you know, then maybe, maybe that substantiates it. You know, I... Personally, as a passive investor, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with giving someone an acquisition fee um, if they have a track record, but I'm never giving an, you know someone on their first deal an acquisition fee. It just doesn't make sense. And what's the typical term of the deal? Uh, like you said, 12 years, 10 years, seven years? When I was talking about the 12 years, that's a, the financing, which is another aspect we can get into in just one second, which is a really good topic for us to discuss. In terms of the, the terms of these syndications, Again, that's up to whatever the syndicator wants to put. I generally see deals anywhere from five to 10 years. There are deals where people say, listen, we're just going to hold this forever. Like, you know, maybe we'll sell it at some point, but, but our plan is this is a yield play. It's getting incredible cash, you know, cash on cash returns. And we're just going to, you know, probably just hold on to this thing forever. I know a guy who buys, he, they, he builds them, right? He built the property from the ground up. They then convert to a HUD loan, which are like 40-year loans at great rates. And they also take like a year to close, which is why you can't really use them for an acquisition. But they'll then hold it. And you know, every five to 10 years, they refinance. And so every time they refinance, he gives their investors their initial investment back. So if you put $100,000 in this deal... They're cash flowing like, I don't know, eight, eight to 10% every year. So, you know, you're making eight to 10 grand every year off of this investment. And then every five to 10 years, boom, you get 100K, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, those things, you know, they're, they're, it becomes like a, you know, 
goose that laid a golden egg. So, so there are people who look to do things that way. But in general, the multifamily investment uh, syndication world, I see people's plans are are five to five to ten years. My my deals are five to seven years are our business plans. Um, but I have a property that we bought under two years ago that we're putting on the market in a couple of weeks. And if it goes well and sells where we think it will, we'll have disposed of the asset. We'll have been in the, in, in the property for two years and we will have hit our, um, you know, our, our, our goals um, in terms of returns. So our investors will be happy because we did it faster than the five years we had anticipated. But sometimes things can go longer, which is why we get those lo- that longer term debt. Because if something happens like a COVID or a you know big recession or something like that, with 12 years of debt, even though you have a five-year business plan, you've got another five to seven years to have the economy turn around and you can get out of that bottom of the market cycle and, and be back up, hopefully. Yeah, I'll bet no, uh, no one ever disclosed in their blue sky filings risk of pandemic, but I'll bet you it's <laughs> everyone going forward. <laughs> it may be. We yeah. Have- we do have like force majeure type things written yeah. in our documents. But yeah. yeah. Last question. Um, we you talked a little bit about financing these and tax treatment. And I wanted to just touch on that quickly. Last episode, you mentioned that there were some very favorable tax treatments that can accompany a syndication deal. Um, can, you, can you go into that a little bit? So, yeah, um, the, the tax treatment is, uh, can be very interesting. And I, I, I'll just disclose this. Um, by saying you should talk with your CPA. Obviously, every all the information I've talked about on the podcast, you should verify with your own attorneys and CPAs and stuff like that. But generally, what happens is on these syndications, it's real estate, so you get depreciation. You know, the regular depreciation happens over um, what is it, twenty-seven and a half years, but that's just like a straight line depreciation on on real estate purchase, but. What we do is we we do a thing called a a cost segregation study. And what a cost segregation study allows us to do is actually take a look at all the different things that we're depreciating um, and accelerate depreciation on certain items. So at a high level, when you're looking at a purchase price of a property, you can only depreciate the structure itself, right? You can't depreciate the cost of the land. However, when you're looking to do the cost segregation, what you can also depreciate is land improvements, right? Let's say you've been, you know, have a driveway, a parking lot, whatever, those kinds of things. You can depreciate that. And landscaping, and uh, you know, again, we hire an engineering company that specializes in this and they understand all the ins and outs of it, just giving you some general guidelines. And then the property itself, while it depreciates over 27 and a half years, that's the structure that's like the walls and the foundation, but not necessarily like the flooring and the fixtures, the lighting, the plumbing, the electric, the bathtubs, any kind of furniture, all those kinds of different things. Those all depreciate over a different schedule as well. So you have certain things that depreciate over a five-year period and then a 15-year period and then the full time. So what that allows you to do is when you first have the property, let's say for argument's sake, I'm just going to make these numbers up. Your depreciation on the property is going to be $100,000 a year as a straight line depreciation. That would mean that the first $100,000 in profit that you would get off the property for that time 
would be offset by a depreciation loss, right? So you wouldn't pay taxes on it that year on that $100,000 of income because you have depreciation to write against it. When you accelerate this through a cost segregation study, it actually means instead of that, let's say $100,000 every year, you might in your first five years have, you know, 200,000 or 300,000. And then as you get into year six, maybe it drops down to 200 because you've written those the things in five years off, you know, and then it gradually like goes down over time. With the Tax and Jobs Act that Congress passed, uh, what was that, 2017? There is a new thing that you guys probably know about called bonus depreciation. Now, bonus depreciation was only being able to be used prior to this tax job for uh, on new construction projects. But they now allow it to be on any property purchased after, I believe it's September 2017, um, that you can could start using this. So any per- property purchased after that, what you do is you have this cost segregation study and they look at all this stuff and they say, okay, everything that depreciates over 20 years or less, we're going to allow you to depreciate in year one. Okay. So you've got basically 20 years of depreciation happening on year one, which is, you know, a vast majority of the depreciation is going to happen then. So what I'm seeing in a lot of the syndications, either that I'm invested in as a passive investor or that, you know, ones that I, I syndicate, they are taking advantage of the cost segregation study and the bonus depreciation. And I'm seeing anywhere from like 70 and in one case, I have more than 100, it's like 105% on the bonus depreciation. So as an example, if I put $100,000 into a deal, I would say on general, I'm getting about eighty dollars to $90,000. In one case, I have over the 100, over the, the amount that I put in as a loss on paper on my K-1. So that loss can't always be used by everybody, right? So that's why you need to talk with your CPA about all this. There's passive loss rules and things like that. Me, as a full-time real estate professional, I am allowed to take full advantage of that. So let's say uh, I made $80,000 on a deal I did, a real estate deal. And then let's say I invested 100 in a deal and they did the bonus depreciation and it was an 80% depreciate, you know, $80,000 depreciation. I basically don't pay tax on the 80000 that I made from the other thing. So is this just available to the general partners or is it also available to the investors as well? It's available to all the investors. Basically, what it means is you as an investor, when you invest in one of these deals, any cash flow that you get from the property during the hold period, it is extremely likely that you're not going to have to pay taxes on that in that year. You, there's recapture at the end, and that's a whole other story. And there's a thing called partial asset disposition. So you don't have to recapture all of it. <laughs> Again, we could do a whole other podcast on that. But basically, as a passive investor, you're probably not going to pay on that. And you may have other passive income that you can write losses off against. My, a friend of mine his grandfather had died and left him a little thing. I don't know, some sort of real estate asset. I don't know all the details on it. And he gets like a few grand a year. It's not like a lot, but he gets a little, he has a little cash that that, that, that he gets every year. 
And he invested in one of my deals. And then he called me when it was tax season after the first investment. He's like, hey, man, like this is amazing because like I don't have to pay taxes on that income anymore because of the passive losses that I have off of the real estate syndication. So he's getting money from the syndication distributions that he doesn't pay taxes on. And he now doesn't have to pay taxes on that other passive income that he has coming on. Now, eventually, like I said, when there's sales and things like that, everything needs to get looked at and, and adjusted appropriately. But it's it can be a tremendous tax savings. If I, if I put $100,000 into an investment, that's $100,000 and I get an $80,000 write-off this year. That's huge. And, you know, there'll be a recapture later on five, 10 years down the road, whenever we sell, but we're not going to recapture all of it. There's going to be a lot of partial assets. It's going to be five to 10 years worth of, of things that depreciation that doesn't need to get written off. Um, so it'll, it can be a really, a really nice tax thing because now that $80,000 right off that I have, I can invest that into something else. So it's got some nice tax advantage. Well, this has been great. We don't want to take up too much more of your time. So, you know, if, again, if people want to get a hold of you to discuss syndication, how can they do that? Yeah. So you can reach me on my website. It's mjppg.com or you can email me, Matt, M-A-T-T at mjp pg.com. I'm going to be coming out with a book pretty soon um, about passive investing. So if you reach out to me um, or you can sign up for the newsletter on my website, uh, we'll let you know when that's, when that thing comes out. That's great, Matt. Thank you so much. Awesome. Matt. Super educational. I've learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, we, got, we got to <laughs> my, step our game up guys. This has been, this has been good. Yeah. <laughs> it was been my pleasure. Thanks guys. I, I enjoyed speaking with you. Take care. Be well, Matt. All right. Take care, Matt. All right. All right. Bye, Bye, everybody.